the 13th floor. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the 13th floor, where the furniture isn't always the best, but the views are amazing. I'm your moderator, B. Jones, and I'm here with the other B. Jones. Yes, sir. Mr. Logistics, Brian Jones. What's happening, baby? Everything is good, man. Had a great Thanksgiving holiday back in South Florida, where it's warm at. <laughs> I'm alive and ready to go, man. That sounds about right, yes, sir. All about my man, BJ, man. So, BJ is, he, he likes to play the background role. <laughs> he likes to try to play that role. But today, we're going to push him to the front. And I've already seen what happens once you, you know, put him to the front, man. It's almost like a still waters run deep type of situation with this guy because I was fortunate enough to be able to watch one of, uh, basically a sermon that you gave not too long ago, man. And it was a, it was a, a very fledged moment. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was definitely you getting out of your comfort zone. Um, it was an arena where I hadn't seen you before. But you looked like you was comfortable doing your thing, no matter how uncomfortable you were feeling on the inside and nervous. So give us a little yeah. bit little bit of background on that. Man, that was an arena I had never experienced before. <laughs> um, so over the last few years, when we joined uh, – Back to, we came back to South Florida. We had been church hopping for a while. We finally found a place that we were comfortable at. The kids were growing. The kids felt comfortable. Um, so I've been volunteering and do a couple of things at volunteering kids zone. I teach one Sunday a month in the kids um, portion of the church, um, kids church basically. Um, but then we also have a couple other groups going. So one of the groups is a men's group that it's a um, one of the executive pastors does with just several um, men around the or from the church, from different aspects, from Spanish service, from English service, because we're a bilingual church. Um, so then the first meeting we had this year, he's, he makes a statement. So, yeah, the goal is to have, um, give you guys opportunity to share your experiences and share a word on a Sunday. And everybody kind of looked at each other like, okay, and like, that sounds cool, but nobody really thought much of it. Then he turned to me and said, Brian, you're first on November 4th. <laughs> and like I said, my head was shaking, yes, but everything in me was saying, oh, no, you made a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but it turned out absolutely amazing, man. I think there were several poignant points that you brought uh, during your time on stage, man. First one were those three soul-searching questions, and I think we can all do ourselves a favor by asking ourselves these soul-searching questions. The first one is, am I being tested? Mm -hmm. I think that's huge, man. But you give me your take on it. Why is that one of the first of your soul searching questions? I think it's uh, it goes back to that internal reflection and how you view life. Um, a lot of times when things come at people, it's never often looked at as a test, more of a punishment or a punitive, right? Mm -hmm. So if you kind of flip the mindset and say, is this a test of me, of my skills, of my belief, of my faith? of of my ability to step out and do something new um it's a different mindset and your approach to it is not offensive or um pushing the opportunity away you're gung-ho about it and even though you may be apprehensive about it it's really like i can do this i there's no question i can do it. i know i can do it i just need to have the confidence in myself and make it happen and then we're going to take that one step further with the second question is, am I willing to make the sacrifice? I think that's the part that trips a lot of us up because yep. we have these lofty goals. We feel like we know what is required, but then when it gets hard, when you got to lose a little bit of sleep or you got to lose a little bit of that game time or any of that, that convenience time, 
that's when it's like, ah, maybe this isn't really what I want to do. Definitely. Um, sacrifice. That's a that's a huge word nowadays. Um, because it could be come from any area of life, right? This experience happened to be spiritual, but that can come. Um, am I willing to make the sacrifice financially? Am I make it time wise with my family, with my wife? Um, but it, again, it's how you receive it and then how you respond to it. And again, it's all about the response and try, not taking everything as a negative impact, a negative blow. And I think that's where I've personally been trying to grow over the last probably five, six years, mm-hmm. um, that these things happen for a reason. And it might sound cliche to some people when I say that, but everything, I believe everything happens for a reason. I can trace back many different things in life that I'm questioning and that, that, I'm, that I might not have taken the appropriate way as a test um, and kind of push it off and put it aside. But those things that I did um, sit back and be like, you know what? I'm willing to sacrifice this to see where this is going to go. It's all been beneficial, right? It's all been beneficial, whether that's picking up and moving my family, whether that's starting a new job, whether that's starting a business, whether that's going going back to school, right? And managing time and managing all these things, all these different things that have paid off and paid dividends in the long run, if I'm willing to make that sacrifice in the long run. But identifying it as a test first and then moving forward with it. I like how you say that everything happens for a reason. And I think um, I want to build on that a little bit because a lot of the time we are the reason, no matter which way you kind of look at it, we are the reason these things happen, whether it's to learn and grow or whether we're the the cause or the reasoning behind it. You know, we have to be able to accept that and be able to move forward from it. So, you know, (laughs) just knowing that these things happen for a reason, there's a purpose in everything. Um, that you go through you got to see it and you got to realize it and live it and learn through that purpose learn through those whether it be mistakes failures or successes there's always a lesson to be gained so one of the things that i've to take from that to build on it one of the things i've always i've accepted and i think i've made again i try to make it a permanent part of my life is that there's no testimony without a test and i'm not just speaking it doesn't have to be spiritual right so you can't tell anybody or help anybody else through anything if you have not done it yourself or have got guidance from somebody who has, has gone through it, have gone through the pitfalls, have gone through the, the, the unknown to get where you are, right? Mm-hmm. So if you can't tell your story and have that testimony, were you really tested? Did you really go through all the trials and tribulations that maybe you were meant to go through, right, to build you up for what's coming next in life? Because a lot of times we look at things that happen to us um, and I'll take my health, for instance, um, being diagnosed as diabetic, which I, a lot of people still don't know that about me. Um, at, I was 16, my initial response and my initial thing was pretty much forget y'all. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And if I'm <laughs> gone, I'm gone. I, if I'm being real and trying to be honest mm-hmm. and what I, when I reflected and looked at, um, the people that I know I had lost in my life or had either I had lost in my life due to diabetes or had lost part of their life. For instance, lost a limb, um, lost um, hearing, lost sight from, from now, um, not t- probably taking care of themselves, right, mm-hmm. um, along the way. So I vowed that, first of all, that my diagnosis would not be my written on my tombstone, mm-hmm. right? So it's not that 
diabetes didn't let me do this. Diabetes didn't let me, or I can't do that because I'm diabetic. Like most of the time people don't know. And I won't even tell people unless they see my pump hang on my side, ask me what's this tube mm-hmm. hanging out of, out of my side, or it comes up in conversation. Mm-hmm. Most situation I'm in, most people don't even know because I don't use it as a crutch. I don't use it for an excuse. Now I make people aware if something's going on, but that's about where it goes. Um, but even if I look at the path in life that that has, once I grasp that mentality, um, and then ironically going back to my work experience in education, I've come across so many kids that have been diabetic in their early years in first grade, second grade, third grade. I've been able to sit down and work with them one-on-one or help them get other services they need to be um, functional in school and still maintain their health, right? So me going through all that, I even had somebody a couple weeks ago say, hey, I know you've been on a pump. I've been on an insulin pump since 99 when I came to UM, right? I know some people who are just now going on a pump. Like, hey, do you mind if I give that person your number so they have somebody to talk to because they're, they're worried about it, they're scared about it, they don't know what to do. So me not taking on the change of my mentality and taking on as, yes, this is part of me, but it doesn't control me. This is not the end of me has also gave me that testimony to help other people along the way. Yeah, I mean, just being that resource to individuals is amazing, man, especially how you're able to help kids. And I'm pretty sure they're going through things that they don't necessarily understand. And a parent that doesn't have it or hasn't struggled with that diagnosis is probably not the best equipped, even though they're going to do everything they can for their child. Having you, that educator that they see, eight, 10 hours out of the day to be able to break it down for them and pe- in, a, in a way that they can understand it and not feel weird, you know, and right. not feel like they're different so much so that they can't be a part of society or be a part of, or just participate in regular activities with their peers. I'm pretty sure right. you've brightened so many lives that way. Well, I, I hope so. And again, it's not just me. I've really taken on that mentality that um, you live it, you learn from it, and you pass on to others. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the 13th floor where the furniture isn't always the best, but the But the views are amazing. Wow. Yeah, that took me totally by surprise. Uh, You have it, man. How you doing, Coach K, in the building? What's going on? I'm good, man. How you doing? I'm delightfully uh, tickled by that smile, man. Like, you just look like a, a happy baby. Just you said you wanted me to smile, man. So I did what you wanted me to do. You, you, man, you can't win on here, man. You don't smile, you hear about it. You smile, you hear about it. I'll have to take this, man. I'm going to revoke your access next week. Oh, man, don't do me like that. Don't do me like that. Phase on, man. We miss you, bro. What's going on? Hey, I'm happy to be back. Uh, as always, whenever I'm on here, I enjoy myself. I enjoy you guys. Looking forward to this wonderful conversation today. Awesome. And we got BJ back on, two weeks strong. What's going on, sir? Yes, sir. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Let's go, baby. Let's go, man. Hey, He's ta- hey you, you going to go for a record? <laughs> you, need, you need one more week. You might have a record. I, I think I need yeah, one more week. <laughs> May not happen next week, so it might start all over. <laughs> <laughs> and a very special introduction, introduction to our special guest, Miss Trinice McNally. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. I'm tired, but I'm good. You're not tired, man. We just getting started here. We okay. just getting started. I'm excited to be with y'all. Y'all, y'all look a little funny, so this should go great. 
I don't know to take that as a comment. Look, look a little funny. Hold what up. Is, why, what is it with the women that we bring on the 13th floor? They somebody here with the shots and the shit. The show's looking funny so far. Not like as in the way you. Oh, the show's looking funny. Okay. <laughs> yeah, what is wrong with you? Oh, oh, oh. All I heard was y'all look funny. Listen, <laughs> look funny at all. I was good. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, y'all look funny. Like, I'm watching the dynamics happening, you know. Yeah, you're on UK. But yes, Ms. Trinice McNally, the founding director of Multicultural Affairs for UDC, University of District Columbia, all new Center for Diversity, Inclusion, and Multicultural Affairs. And she is a pl- proud graduate from Bethune-Cookman University. University now, right? For a while Absolutely. now. So we want to oh, talk okay. about the HBCU experience, man. And you have it Absolutely. from both ends Welcome of the spectrum the uh, as a graduate, as well as an uh, uh, administrator and faculty. So, uh, you know, give us a little bit of your background to start off with. Uh, I'm trying to think what would be the best way. So I graduated from a Miami Carroll City Senior High School in Miami. Um, and band was a really big part of my life. I played clarinet for probably about 15 years. So Bethune-Cookman University um, at FAMU was out of those two schools if I was going to be like in band. I got accepted to like six schools, I think, um, but it was pretty much down to Cookman um, or FAM. Um, And because I was an undocumented immigrant at the time and didn't have status, it was easier to get into a private historical black college, right, than getting into a public school in terms of like funding. So I got Mm -hmm. into all these schools, but it was really hard to pay for them. So Mm -hmm. I got a really good band scholarship at Cookman and marched into band all four years. And that's kind of how like I ended up going to the Cookman in the first place. Um, We're doing a lot of student organizing around like LGBTQ issues. I'm not sure how much you know about like the histories of the black church and HBCUs, but that's pretty much how most of our schools were founded because of the black church or like had some type of connection to a religious affiliation. Um, what like whether it was the Quakers or it's like the Baptist Church, which was like Morehouse, Morehouse's foundation, or like Bethune Cookman, um, which is Mary McLeod Bethune founded that institution with a dollar and fifty cents, five little girls in faith in God. We had a very strong like religious background. Um, so obviously the campus was homophobic. Um, and I probably was out on campus, probably my sophomore year, like had dated men. Had an ex-boyfriend. He was a cat, but he was so trash. He was trash. I'm sorry. I see your fine new pie in the corner. I had to say that. He was trash. <laughs> oh, so, he was trash. So trash. You, you probably, you're probably a great guy, I'm sure. <laughs> he, was, he was trash, right? And, like, I was, I had always been attracted to women. Was always figuring out, like, what is my sexual orientation? What is my gender identity? How do those things change? And how do they shift over the years? And, like, Bethune-Cookman University is probably the place where I found myself. So I started doing a lot of organizing. A lot of students um, didn't feel supported, um, honestly, on the campus. Uh, there was a lot of like different suicide ideation attempts. Um, folks didn't have places to go. Homelessness, like all of those things were happening. And the school basically didn't want to make a stance or did not want to do anything for LGBTQ folks. So I led a lot of that work on campus. I started organizing on my campus and throughout the community in Daytona. Um, later on, I wrote a thesis um, in graduate school about like what are the best practices um, for HBCUs for LGBTQ students and ended up creating like a position for myself um, at the institution in the president's office. So just started doing a lot of organizing around the nation, doing a lot of LGBTQ work, went to North Carolina Central, another HBCU, um, ran their LGBT center for like a couple years, um, then resigned and went and worked for this organization called the National Life Justice Coalition. It's a black LGBTQ civil rights organization that was all HBCU ran. So the executive director, one of my sores, uh, she's- Hold on, 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 hold on. 
I need to slow you down, ma'am. You are just like you ask you ask a lot of questions, and you, I'm trying to you, 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 no, 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 no. And, and we want it, but you dropping all this great stuff about you, and you doing it so fast. I want Ooh, the listeners sorry, to hear, sorry. To hear it and appreciate it and respect it. You know what I mean? Got you. I'll go back. So I'll go back to I left Bethune Cookman, graduated um, with my master's, did a lot of HBCU work on that campus, traveled around the nation doing like best practices and research work. Then it took me to another historically black college and I ran the LGBT center there for a while. Um, did some work there. I um, was able to make some really dope changes in Durham, North Carolina. Then I left and started working for another organization serving as like the HBCU program manager that ran all the LGBTQ work in six states on the East Coast. So I say all that to say I've been doing HBCU work from like a student organizer perspective as someone that was a band member, um, sorority girl, was really active on my campus, um, and then now have become an administrator and serve like more than just LGBTQ students, but like students who um, who aren't undocumented, um, students who are in international with status and without status, and first-generation college students. So like kind of my matriculation has, has really transformed um, from like an organizer perspective to now like an administrator um, that kind of encourages students to organize on the campus and turn up on administrators when necessary. <laughs> That's absolutely necessary. So, man, I wish, I wish, I so wish you'd have went to the University of Miami. Man. <laughs> that turn up on the administrator's piece, right? That turn up on the administrator's piece. Man, we'd have loved you. Man. Anyway, proceed. That's part of being about a college student, I think. That's <laughs> the best uh, part. Listen, listen, everybody doesn't get that part, though. Everybody doesn't realize that's, that's when you start. This, this, this is your small little fishbowl where you get to test that all out. Mm-hmm. You know, for people that go to school. Yeah, for people that go to school, yeah. Yeah, if, and they think, that it's, they think it's all about going to that class and getting that grade. There, there's so much more education for you to get on the college campus. But anyway, that's another podcast. Proceed. <laughs> right, so let's talk about that dynamic a little bit because obviously all four of us on the podcast, Carol, Art, and uh, BJ, all from a predominantly white institution. And then we have you, and there's just stark differences. And I want to know, um, how do you see the state of the HBCU in its current climate in comparison, or, or so we can compare it to what we kind of experienced at our predominantly white institutions? Oh, I think that this is like always such an interesting conversation that I'm not sure if like, type of question right like warrants a specific answer right like so predominantly white institutions being founded usually by white folks right Mm -hmm. most historical black colleges were also founded by white folks (laughs) and i don't think people are also clear right like just on like the founding and the principles but it's it's mainly about like that like those those ground verse board decisions those like separation of church and state issues like those landmark decision issues that actually made hbcus hbcus or like, you know, before desegregation, which allowed people like you on this call and like other black folks to actually go to these institutions. I think there, there are many differences, but I also think there are a lot of similarities because folks are black, right? And like black folks naturally have innately things in common. Um, but I think the difference is PWIs are generally larger schools, right? HBCUs are naturally smaller, more intimate institutions where you're looking at maybe like 10,000 or less. In my case, Bethune-Cookman was like 5,000 students. And that was like at a really good year when everybody was paid. You know what I'm saying? When retention was at its all-time high. Um, I think in this political climate, you're noticing an increase 
of like black students going to HBCUs because they're wanting to feel connected, right? And connected to a type of lineage and a type of history that they may not feel connected to at a historically black college. I think maybe five or 10 years ago, I would always I would promote historically black colleges over PWIs um, for different reasons. And I think my sentiments have changed um, mainly because some predominantly white institutions are leading a lot of the work that I believe HBCU should be leading, right? Like, I think we have a different responsibility to make sure that our folks' experiences are centered, but mm-hmm. oftentimes HBCUs were actually like breeding the respectability politics and all the bullshit, in my opinion. Um, I, but I, I don't hold like whiteness as a standard. So to me, like a PWI is not the standard. Like, mm-hmm because it's a white institution or inherently white in terms of its founding, I'm more interested in the work that's happening on that campus, right? Mm-hmm. What kind of work is our students leading? But innately, right, like my heart is with historically black colleges because I understand, right, those are the institutions that were for us, that were usually created for us, that we inherited. But are we doing the work that I know that we should be doing? I'm not always sure, right? Like I'm not always sure that that's actually happening. And I'm really thinking about like, diversity and inclusion, right? And multicultural affairs and making sure that things are equitable for, for different uh, historically marginalized communities. I don't see it always happening um, at historically black colleges in the way that I know that it should. That's really interesting that you say that because I was thinking, you know, complete opposite, especially when you point out the socio-political climate that mm-hmm. we're in. And then I look at the things and I think about the HBCU experience from what I've heard from those that have attended. You know, mm-hmm. they always talk about the 360 degree, you know, protection and push and that um, uh, just a, a certain level of growth and development that they receive. Mm-hmm. Um, so to hear you speak about, you know, the HBCUs not necessarily leading the charge it sounds like in certain aspects versus a predominantly white institution that probably is subscribing more to that diversity and inclusion because they have to um it it, it just kind of throws me off a little bit so um where do you see yourself in all of that because i know you're doing a lot of that activism in your current position and you have done a lot of that in the past I think it's like you just asked me to, I feel like you made a comment that I would need to figure out how to respond to. Um, But to directly answer your question, um, I see myself as leading that work um, and holding folks accountable. So oftentimes on the campus I work at or other campuses, it's like, well, Trinise, you know, you're bringing your gay agenda to our school. And I'm like, no, you actually have had LGBTQ students on your campus and you haven't properly been serving them, right? You've had first generation college students on your campus and we haven't adequately been serving them. You've had students with disabilities on your campus, right? And the list goes on because marginalized identities like are not happening in a monolith in the same way that black people are not a monolith. There's no one black person that is the same, right? And our identities and our experiences is what shapes us, right? And like shapes, how we walk and navigate through the world. And I think it's a HBCU's responsibility, especially for black and brown folks, to make sure that people's experiences are centered, right? And that we're providing like a quality accessible, like education to folks inside and outside of the classroom. Um, And I always say that to HBCUs because I think we have a particular responsibility when it comes to black students specifically. Like specifically, it is our role and responsibility to make sure that students have the the care that they need, that students feel affirmed, that they feel supported, that they have a curriculum that's truly inclusive and that's really going to prepare them, right, for the world when they graduate and not going to like reinforce like more like 
patriarchal misogynistic little assholes running around the town which is what we see on television in the white house right and in different political administrations and they're not all white folks some of those are, are people too right and it's because folks haven't been educated and are not clear about people's identities and about people's lived experiences so i think i see my role is like leading that work on campuses uh to really transform culture to me i do like cultural competency trainings like i've done so many trainings i don't train so many people um, and to me, trainings are like not pointless, right? Because I think that's that's the first step, right? Like saying that I would like to go to a training and I am willing to learn this specific thing. Um, but it's about transforming and changing the culture. Like we have to shift culture. And to me, HBCUs um, play a much larger role. Um, and I want to be careful about my words because HBCUs and the Black church are the oldest institutions that Black people have had post the transatlantic slave trade, mm -hmm. right? Like we've had the black church and we've had historical black colleges and historical black colleges came as a result of the black church, right? So I just think that the responsibility is different. Now, to me, that doesn't mean that PWIs are not as responsible because mm -hmm. folks that integrated PWIs, um, I think folks are many reason integrated PWIs. I think some of it, some of it was, um, how do I say this? A lot of respect, a lot of respectability. Like we want our kids to go to a better school, right? Mm -hmm. Than like, and not go to a black school. And the sum of it was like, it had nothing to do with that. It had to do with what was one of the, where could I get a great education? that had a great atmosphere that would get me like what I wanted to do post-graduation, right? Like some people don't go to schools based on race or based on lineage or legacy, especially black folks who are like first gen. Like mm -hmm. most of us are either first gen. Some of our parents went to school, but they weren't like big top tier schools. For y'all, y'all went to UM, right? Like one of the best schools in the country that everyone knows about. Like whether it's medicine, whether it's biology, whether it's education, whether it's like the football team or even the band, like University of Miami is like a top tier school. Damn. I was say I love how she put three things before the football team. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, just to me the football. No, 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 no. I don't have any. I don't have any. He issues. reacted to the band just like me. <laughs> she mentioned the band. I was like, oh my god. The 13th floor. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the 13th floor, where the furniture isn't always the best, but the views are amazing. It's your moderator, B Jones, and I am here one on one with the man, Coach K, Carol Kadaya. What's happening, bro? Uh, what's good, man? Uh, I think uh, I may have um, I changed the access code for the rest of the fellas. You see what happens? They're, they're stuck downstairs in the lobby. I guess they found out who, who who wired the building today. Now they know. This is what happens <laughs> when you get CEOs and they start to really flex that power. You know what I'm saying? Like you get just making all kinds of executive decisions and everybody else got to sit this one out, huh? Man, every once in a while, man, you know, my my gorilla's not a zero, so that means it exists. <laughs> I activate that gorilla. If you're interested in finding out about yourself, uh, hit me up. I can definitely put you on that four animals assessment. We can find out what what animals you may have between the gorilla, the turtle, the uh, chameleon. Yeah, and, baby. Uh, yeah, chameleons in the building, um, and the flamingo. Easy, easy. Four walls oh, of this apartment. Let me extend it out to the whole store. And in extending it out to the whole store, it also affords me an opportunity to affect a region as a whole, which I had that opportunity in person, but um, I think you get a little bit more where people can see you when you kind of expose yourself. So once again, diversifying um, the scope 
and the range of, of, of what you can impact and how you can impact. I want to talk about diverse, that diversification and that scope and that range. So was it different or diff, not different? Obviously, it's different. Was it difficult for you coming into that enlarged scope and range and reach, basically, that you've come into? And the reason I ask that is because when I ascended to the position that I'm at now, the latitude with which I'm able to work with, I hadn't experienced anything like that before. So it took me a while to adjust, and I'm still really in that adjustment period where it's like, okay, I can make certain decisions. I can do certain things and really not have to, you know, ask permission when doing so, whereas before it's kind of like you got to send things up the chain and, you know, they yay or nay it, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I think what happens to people is that you don't always believe who you are until somebody tells you this is who you are. And I, I think that's what happened to you. You didn't necessarily hold on to this is who Brett is, right? And, and when you work for me, I started kind of pushing you that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, like, right? That, that's how you're the moderator of the podcast. That's how you, you own this. Because that wasn't your thing. You were kind of that background, I'm going to do all this heavy lifting, um, but I don't want to be out in the forefront. And I kind of pushed you out. And I think for me, I was already doing the work. And that's what I always tell people about promotion in most cases, you're already doing the work. And once you have grasped that you're doing the work and you consistently do it, then you reach to a point where you get the title. So the title comes as the reward for the work that you're already doing. And that's why what you are doing to get you here, like there's a book that says what got you here won't get you there, but what got you here won't keep you here either. Right. Because we're expecting more from you now that we've given you this title. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's that. I think that's a piece that people miss. They think that oh, I, I put in my time, I put in my work. No, you put in your time and you put in your work to get to this point. Right now it's time. To now, what else do you have in your skill set that you can show me? Again, part of the the diversity piece, which people have a, a a total people have put into a box what diversity is, but I'm sure we'll get into that later. Yeah, man, I want to stick with Chicago a little bit. So you've been out there how long now trying to find a house? Man, I've probably been out. So at this transitional point in your life and Mm -hmm. now knowing that diversity and and inclusion is it, and you know, we're going to get into a little bit. Well, you've already defined that, you know, for the listeners. What was it that like was like, bam, that was it. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do we find that lane, that niche area to like propel ourselves and go forward in? It is funny that you say that because, so I didn't necessarily, yes, we look at diversity as race, sex, but diversity is so much more. Diversity, it's all around us and people don't realize it. So if you think about music, do you listen to the same genre of music all day, every day? That gets pretty boring. Like when you go to a party, and there's a DJ, what if that DJ only plays one genre? You're going to say, oh, this party sucks. Right. Think about food. Do you eat the same foods every day? If you ate the same food every day, if I just gave you carrots every single day, how many days would you skip eating? I don't know. I like carrots, and they help you see well, so, you know. 
Right, but if you knew <laughs> that there were other options, yeah, no, that's just giving them to you. It's you like no man, variety, diversity, like that. What they say, that's the, want, the spice of life. You know, you the want spice that. of life. Stock portfolios. We mentioned that earlier. They see. They say the key is diversification of your portfolio. Right. I I take it to a biological level. You have dogs. You have pure breeds, and then you have mixed breeds, or what they call mutts. Well, what people don't realize and understand most of the time is that the mutts and mixed breeds have a better longevity and a health factor than a pure breed because the pure breed only gets this one set of DNA, one set of traits. And as they go through, once they develop certain sicknesses, that sickness just keeps going over and over and it just keeps spreading within the pure breed. So most people know, know now that you want a designer dog that is a mixture and is going to last longer, is going to be better for their human counterparts from a hypoallergenic standpoint. Hmm. But then we don't equate the same thing to people in what we do with our businesses and what we do with culture. And that's crazy because the, the, diversif the diversification factor, it just plays such a large role. Like just the experiences, the perspectives, the know-how, the, your, your level of intelligence is so limited when you were only able to see from a, a when you're only able to see out in a box, like when you're boxed in that, that diversification just, it, it takes everything to the next level because of the experiences and, and mm -hmm. value, the value added from that. And when you look at being a father now, that, that's giving me a whole nother viewpoint on it. Because when you look at kids interacting and uh, we started taking uh, Asher to the little gym, mm -hmm. which is something that Art put me on to, that Faison put me on to. Mm -hmm. And when you watch the kids, they don't have any preconceived, oh, I play with this child because they're my same race. That doesn't exist. Like we claim that people always want to go with who looks like them, who they're comfortable with. That's not nature. We mm -hmm. start out open to everybody. Especially when and you see are, something that's different. Like it just draws your attention. Exactly. And the inclusion piece is, is, is the key because you watch these kids having fun and they're doing something and they want to get the next child next to them involved. They don't care what they look like how they speak. Hey, I'm having fun. Come have fun with me. I don't care what you look like. I don't care how much money your parents have. I don't care where you were born. Come on, let's do it. And that inclusion piece is there for them. And then through learned behavior, they assimilate what we do. And that's, that's the key to all of this. And now I think that's the key to you, to hum humanity overall, is realizing that it's not just a matter of the privilege and what you have access to. If I have access, then I should provide my fellow man with access. And how we get here and into this lane, because if you go back and you watch early podcast episodes, man, where were we at? We were at uh, Believing in Your Dreams, Empowering People to Achieve. We were at uh, Helping Male Divorcees. <laughs> Right. You remember that <laughs> there were so many things and yeah, what we... came out of what came out of all of it. And look, shout out to, to ETA for continuing to push me. Shout out to Chris, who's not with us anymore, for keeping the for, for continuing to consistently push me to nope, keep 
keep thinking, keep thinking. I remember coming back to you guys like, no, nah, they didn't like that. And you guys were like, what? That was perfect. Like, man, listen, there was a couple times where I was just, I was ready to go into the room and do the pitch. And I'm not even that guy, but it's like, yo, you can't tell me that this doesn't sell. But, you know. Exactly. But then what you get from all of that is look at the diversity of the experiences that I have gone through. And then you put that into a parallel plane with my career and what I've been able to do. And you start to realize because of diversity of my background, because of diversity of my experiences, I'm able to relate to people and connect to people and push out a better result than what somebody that hasn't had that before. And I think there are people out there, yes, you've checked the box. You've hired somebody that is of a different race, a different sex, but you still have not included what, what makes them great. You haven't included what got them to this point. And I say that to say, if, if you look at folks like you and I, when you come and tell us we don't have the money to buy more supplies, well, that's cool. Because when we were growing up, our parents didn't have the money for us to get new school clothes. Right. So we're going to figure out how to make do with what we've got. <laughs> that mind state alone Man, I had a situation happen early. We never can get onto it in the pockets, but that mind state alone, just the willingness to do what it takes to get mm-hmm. someplace, man, it's just missing. Yeah. It's just missing. Right. Or when you say, uh, we got to make some budget cuts. Mm-hmm. That's cool. It doesn't bother me. I got divorced and my whole bank account was cut. I didn't have any access, nothing. And I survived that. Right. So, we got to have budget cuts. Let's have budget cuts. That resiliency that we've had built in us because we came up in a system that was not designed for us. So when you say you want to put on that new project or you want to explore this new avenue that we've never done as a company, cool. We're ready to come up with ideas because we've had to come up with new ideas just to exist and to, to, to progress, period, to this point. So we're ready. We're your people. But most time we don't get leverage for those ideas because we don't look like the people in charge. We don't speak like the people in charge and they think that we don't have anything of value. Whereas if you go in and you leverage your people that don't think the same way you do, you're going to get that outside of the box thinking that's probably going to put your company or your home or whatever it may be to the next level. So if you listen, the 13th floor, The 13th Floor. floor, floor.